1: I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Do Androids Dream of Chris Pine edition It's Wednesday, April 13th, 2022 On today's show, Julia, it's on HBO Max It's a limited series that tells the story of the revolution in American cooking effected by Julia Child It stars the transcendent Sarah Lancashire. And then we discuss After Yang, a dreamy sci-fi meditation from the writer-director Koganada. That's not only a mononym, but a pseudonym. We'll discuss that as well. And finally, hmm, what's that in the air? Is that the scent of pine? It turns out Dana, no marital exception, Stevens carries a special torch into the pine grove. I'll stop. The deeply serious question here is, is Chris Pine our Robert Redford? She wrote an essay on it for Slate. Let me first introduce, though, June Thomas. June is the co-host of uh, Working, Slate's podcast about the creative process. June, a delight to have you back, and it's a double delight I'll explain in a sec, though you know why.
2: (laughs) Well, thank you, Stephen. I'm very happy to be here.
1: It's the double delight because you and I are huge fans of Happy Valley Last Tango in Halifax, and thereby Sarah Lancashire, who in 2014, you said, deserved to be better known and her moment may have arrived. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. But I'm so psyched you're here to talk about that and other things. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate and the author of the hit book, Cameraman, about the life of Buster Keaton, but so much more, a terrific book-length essay on the 20th century and film. Dana, hey
3: hey, Stephen, thank you for those very sweet words (laughs) about my book.
1: They flow easily, Dana, because they are uh, sincere. It's it's just a delight when a, a friend of yours triumphs. You know, you did a great job.
3: Thank you so very much. Well, I had I had one word for listeners about the book. Since last week I told you that I was going down to Washington, D.C. and Williamsburg, I should tell Boston-based listeners that this week, in fact, the day this show drops on Wednesday, April 13th, I will be in Boston at the Great Coolidge Corner Theater, an old movie house where, Steve, if you remember, we once did a live Slate Culture Gab Fest.
1: I know. That was that was the ignominious moment where I got goaded by the audience into singing And didn't hit the side of a fucking barn with my uh, pitch. But, you know, whatever. I've forgotten that, Dana. I'm glad that you're going to supplant the stink of that with the scent of (laughs) pine, the beautiful (laughs) scent of pine.
3: I will be there showing the general and signing books and talking with Ty Burr, former film critic for the Boston Globe. So if you live in Boston and you want to come see me, look at the Coolidge Corner Theater website for more information.
1: Brilliant. Okay, Uh, guys, shall we make a show? Let's. All right, well, Julia, it's on HBO Max. It's a limited series about Julia Child. Not a totally unfamiliar subject, of course. There was a Meryl Street movie and I kind of know the story, but this one's this one's interesting. It covers her move from cookbook pioneer to public TV star. It's part marital dramedy. Her husband is played by the forever delightful David Hyde Pierce. It's also part madman-esque period piece. It takes us Back to an America still lost in the supermarket, a country without its own developed foodways and for whom French food was still pretty much totally alien. Child was out to create a real revolution, a bridge between the Cordon Bleu, where she'd studied, and the typical American housewife. The show delightfully stars Sarah Lancashire. We can't wait to talk about her. She of Happy Valley, Last Tango in Halifax, but uh, let's listen to a clip. Let me set it up a little bit. In this clip, we're going to hear a snobby public TV executive who's been a big naysayer about the idea of Julia Child hosting her own TV show, and she wins him over with a slab of pâté and a sly wit. Let's
2: listen. Listen, I'm glad you called. I've been thinking about your desire to do a cooking show, but I'm afraid I made pâté! Huh? Goose. Can
3: I entice you to try it
2: allow me oh I dare say we got off on the wrong foot to have a man as intellectually curious as you producing my little show is an embarrassment of riches thank
1: you I couldn't agree more
2: but I thought if you knew more about me you know my husband was a diplomat he's a man of letters we met in Salon. Let me cut to the chase, Mrs. Child. Oh, Julia, please. Julia, I appreciate this, I do. But you have to understand that I am not a frivolous person. I may be in the television industry, but public television is not television television. It's not entertainment. I am not an entertainer. I'm not entertaining. Completely. Sherry? Now, you, I, I understand you feel that what you do has substance, and maybe to some ladies it means it does, but public television is on a much larger journey. Oh, my God. You you see,
1: I want to change the way people think, the way they see, the way they live their lives. But so do I. But how can food possibly do that? That's really very good. Thank you. June, let me start with you. I had a friend text me multiple times about this show, a very unlikely, you would have thought, audience for it. And he said, the reason to watch is the lead actress, Sarah Lancashire. And I, as a huge fan of hers and Happy Valley and Last Tango and Halifax, didn't recognize the name. You wrote about her in 2014 saying, she's about to be better known. These shows are coming to Netflix. I think people devoured the shows. Anyone who saw them was blown away by her performance in both somehow she didn't (sighs) the performance stuck but something about her didn't you know and but this is the role of a lifetime what do you think
2: well it's it is super interesting you know i just happened to catch in the way that we still sometimes do the trailer for this show i didn't really wasn't something that was particularly on my radar i it, it started to play and i didn't cut it off which is always the ultimate sign and it was only when it ended And I thought, who was that? Then I realised it was her. And this is someone who I have been watching since she was, well, since we both were very young. She was in my favourite soap opera. That was her big break. Uh, And, you know, I've literally been watching her for 40 years and I didn't recognise her. And... Perfect subject, right? Who could not want to watch something about Julia Child? And I would suspect that, I mean, I'm an older person, but I came to America a little later in life. And so I never saw Julia Child actually being Julia Child. And I think that possibly, maybe most of the people who watch the show, or certainly many of the people who watch the show and have consumed much of the Julia Child kind of biography metaverse. Uh, will not really have that much familiarity with the original, but instead be kind of used to the impersonations or the biopics. And so it's an odd thing because I both didn't recognise Sarah Lancashire and also kind of wanted to watch it because of Julia Child, who I don't know. It's a very kind of perverse and uh, meta experience. But I'm so glad I did start to watch it because even though... It is in many ways a very sort of standard, middle-brow, very low-stakes in a way show. I find it absolutely compelling. It was a delight. It's the ultimate kind of hit-next, one-more-episode kind of show. I absolutely loved it.
1: Um so with you, uh, Dana. You know, I know she's no Chris Pine, but Sarah Lancashire, pretty great, right?
3: <laughs> yeah, I can tell that Pine is going to be the animating theme <laughs> of this so show. Sorry. <laughs> I <laughs> won't complain. Uh, yeah, I didn't feel any need for another show on, on Julia Child because Julia and Julia, the Nora Ephron, you know, double film about, about Julia Child with Meryl Streep as Julia Child and Amy Adams as, you know, the blogger who cooks all her recipes, is sort of chapter and verse in our household. My daughter worships Meryl Streep, and we've watched that movie so many times. It's sort of one of our comfort watches that I sort. of felt like I don't need to see any more about Julia Child's life story or anyone else playing her. But June, I was wrong. And thank you for suggesting <laughs> this show. It's so much fun and so pleasurable. And while I haven't watched all the available episodes yet, I completely plan to stick with it. And like you say, it's somewhat low stakes in terms of you know the big suspense of the show is essentially will this, you know, privileged, successful woman who's already published a legendary cookbook that's made her famous and who has a loving diplomat husband manage to make a successful TV show or not? So it's not exactly life or death stakes. But it winds up being such a, a wonderful story. And it is really Sarah Lancashire who who anchors all of that. And it's quite interesting that, I mean, although I think Meryl's Julia is is perfect for what it is, and I, I still love that half of that movie. I think the Meryl half is much stronger than the Amy Adams half of Julia and Julia. But Sarah Lancashire brings a different edge to the character. I want to say that she almost plays her a little bit... Um, Darker isn't quite the word, because she's still a very sunny person and a sunny personality, and it's well shown that that is what wins over, you know, viewers to, to watching what was at the time a really radical show, you know, watching a woman cook a meal. Um, but she brings out a little bit of an edge in her that has to do with her ambition. And uh, although Julie and Julia is also about, you know, the va- vaulting ambition of this housewife who who wants to make a cookbook... This is a little bit different because it's sort of about her pushing beyond what what anyone, even her adoring husband, thinks she should do and kind of feeling her way into something that no one has has yet done before. I don't know how to describe it, but I feel like I, I feel like this is almost a sequel to Julia and Julia mm. where you get to you know hop into a different metaverse and explore a different side and different chapter of that same character.
1: Right. It's like it's like Julia Child and David Hyde Pierce. Fanfic, a little bit. I mean, it's delightful for every reason that you enumerate, and also for portraying a happy marriage in a realistic way. I thought, you know, it's not without conflict; it's not without competing uh, uh, ambitions uh, at all. But it's it's just fun to be around the two of them. It's always fun to be around Niles and Sarah Lancashire. You know, is transcendent in this. But um, starting elsewhere yeah. for a second, I'm interested in the bumping up of the stakes because. The stakes, to my mind, June, the stakes were high enough here, which is in this era, what does a woman have to do in order to be ambitious in a world completely dominated, personally ambitious, in a world dominated by men? I almost, between the marital dramedy and that struggle, and she's just entering menopause and realizing she's not going to have a child, which is a very distinct moment of, of grief for her that the show you know, sort of sets up as one of the reasons why doing something outside of the home is now maybe critically important to her sense of self. And I thought that that was enough. What about what about you, June?
2: Yeah, it's funny actually. I made a note here: the stakes question mark mm-hmm. low, but enough. And I, I think ah. you're right that I, in that, in doing that, I, in saying that, I'm a little bit uh, kind of erasing all of the tensions around women's self-actualization and, you know, the the rights of wives to have a life, which was still really not enshrined in law at that point. Uh, there were certain things that women could only do with their husband's permission back then. Um, so I don't mean to erase that. I guess, though, it's more of a contrast. It's the contrast to what I think, uh, you know, we've recently been uh, referring to after an essay in The New Yorker uh, by uh, Perul Sagal, of of what we're shorthanding as the trauma plot. You know, compared to what we so often see these days, it feels low, but it also... Maybe that means that I can relate more than if it's to, you know, life or death, ticking clock, blah, blah, blah. I, you know, fortunately, that's not something that I have to deal with. Whereas, you know, the things that Julia Child was facing, uh, I do. And I, I, I think you're right, too, to point to other moments. It's not just about Julia Child and and her relationship with her husband. Um there's also, uh, you know, as you say, there are these these other plots that are sometimes feel a little kind of bolted on. But there's one with um, that I found really quite delightful, which was with her editor uh, Judith Jones, uh, who had been the editor who found or at least brought to life uh, the the Diary of Anne Frank, and was, you know, one of the leading editors of her day, and Blanche Knopf, her boss is absolutely contemptuous of the work that she's doing with Julia Child. She thinks that uh, Judith Jones is wasting her life, wasting her talent, wasting her time by, you know, working with cookbooks. So, you know, this really strong, really successful woman uh, who's at the top of her career, another very ambitious and very successful woman, uh, kind of both sets up this tension with, you know, the the high culture and cooking, uh, but also you know, with with what must women do. Um, you know, it throws out a lot of questions. Again, something that TV does these days, you know, you've got to have not just sort of three plots uh, in every show, but like 16 storylines that you're juggling uh, with the whole series. But I pretty much enjoyed most of them. So, you know, I had no complaints. And I, and I yeah, I and Sarah Lancashire, she truly... You know, it, it, when I wrote that piece in 2014, I think in many ways the thing I wanted to do was say, this is someone you haven't heard about because she's northern. She's northern royalty. Her father was a writer for Coronation Street. She got her start on Coronation Street. She's she's basically been doing northern shows. And, you know, usually that means working class shows. And, sh- you know, it's it, sh- she just has never made the leap, as many people don't from the north. Um, and. I'm just just so glad to see her, uh, you know, appearing on an American show with American stars and getting to kind of act against them. And I'm just so so happy. And I hope I hope there's more.
1: I'm right there with you, June. And I strongly suspect there will be. Dana, maybe one last thought, which is maybe we shouldn't lower the stakes as much as we have. In the following sense, there's a wonderful shot. Of, uh, or a miniature scene of uh, her and uh, her husband in an American supermarket, I'm going to say circa 1961. And the point she makes is actually an interesting one. He's horrified at the ingredients that she's going to try to prepare French haute cuisine with. And she says, I, I have to select dried herbs. I have to select... X, Y, and Z from the shelves of the A&P or wherever they are, because that's who these readers, this is what these readers of mine are going to have access to. And she is building an interesting bridge. And across that bridge came everybody else, right? This kind of, I mean, there was regional, there were deep regional food foodways in the United States and always have been and always will be, the South in particular, soul food. I mean, all kinds of things. But in some sense, it took Julia Child to begin a self-consciousness about food in a cosmopolitan way that then allowed for the food culture I think probably we and all of our listeners are now steeped in. I mean, a completely different level of seriousness about home cooking. I think Alice Water crosses the Julia Child Bridge as well 10, 15, 20 years later, affecting or or, or sort of deepening that revolution. And, and eventually we get a consciousness of of an entire integrated food system, where food comes from, how to make it sustainable, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't, actually don't know how small that is. I think it's hard to cram that into, you know, the expositional portions of a TV dramedy, but I, I believe it, and I think they've done an elegant job.
3: Yeah, it's a show that values pleasure, and that makes it a pleasure to watch. So I think you're right that scenes like, you know, her thinking about how to translate her knowledge of French cooking into something that the average American housewife can understand— have some kind of value and import be- beyond, you know, what they mean for the career and life of this particular character. I mean, we haven't really mentioned much about how the show looks and sounds, but I just wanted to mention that it is one of the producers and writers, Daniel Goldfarb, is someone who is also involved with The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which is a show we've talked about um, uh, on this show. And to me, I tried to get into The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel because it looks and sounds so beautiful. And, you know, the costume design is gorgeous and the use of mid-century music is fantastic. Ultimately, I found the main character too annoying and, uh, and the writing of the show kind of subpar, and I didn't stick with it. But this has all of that pleasure element, you know, incredible costumes and wonderful colors and, you know, Frank Sinatra belting tunes on the soundtrack with, I think, a little more substance and a main character who's much, much easier and more fun to engage with.
1: Okay, a, a, just a brief survey of the best-selling cookbooks of all time give you some sense of the revolution she affected. Betty Crocker's cookbook? The fanny farmer cookbook and there it is mastering the art of french cooking by julia <laughs> child all right it's on hbo max sarah lancashire worship at the altar please <laughs> she's fantastic it's uh, called julia check it out
3: and tell us what you thought all right let's uh let's move on apple card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card you earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day that's three percent on all your favorite products at apple on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
1: All right. Before we go any further, Dana, uh, we typically talk business right around here on our show. What do you got?
3: Stephen, our only item of business this week is to tell listeners about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, we're responding to a listener email from a listener named Ross... Who wrote to us saying, based on the Canada bashing, winky face emoji, from the February 2nd episode, I would love to hear the favorite piece of Canadian culture from the folks around the table. I should mention that favorite is spelled with a U, so I'm assuming this listener is Canadian. To be clear, I don't think there was any actual Canada bashing going on in our February 2nd episode. We were talking about Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, I believe, who, of course, we would never disparage in a million years. But whatever we said, we really like this question from Ross. So, if you're a Slate Plus member, you will get to hear each of us talk about our favorite pieces of Canadian culture at the end of the show. If you're not a Slate Plus member, of course, you can sign up today at slate.com slash cultureplus. When you are a Slate Plus member, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus segments like the one I just described, which come on a lot of other Slate podcasts too, and best of all, you get unlimited access to all of the great writing on slate.com. You will never hit a paywall if you belong to Slate Plus. And of course, you will be supporting us, our magazine, and the work of all our wonderful colleagues. These memberships matter a lot to Slate, so please sign up today at slate.com slash cultureplus. Once again, that address is slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, back to the show.
1: All right, well, the setup to After Yang is in its way pretty simple. A family has purchased an uncannily human-like humanoid robot to help care for, maybe even really be a sibling to their adopted daughter. The parents, I should say, are not Asian, their daughter is Asian, and Yang presents as Asian, becomes very important to the theme of the movie. When Yang breaks down and is deemed beyond repair, the family's father, played by Colin Farrell, goes on a journey to fix Yang, which may be hopeless, but also a journey inward into both his own and the memory bank of his AI son. All this prompts him to wonder, where does the soul live and exist in both us and the world? In addition to Colin Farrell, the movie stars Jodie Turner-Smith, Justin Min as Yang, and I should repeat it's from the writer-director Koganado. Okay, in the following scene the family discusses Yang after he's become unresponsive. The characters Jake, Kira, and their daughter Micah are reacting to the maybe temporary, maybe permanent loss of their robotic family member. Let's let's listen. I know, love. You miss him? It's you. You just can't see him now.
2: What about the family dance? Are we never gonna dance again?
3: Of course we will. But
2: we might have to compete in the family of threes. I don't want to be a family of three. Mika. I want Kuka back. Daddy's trying his
1: best. He's doing everything he can.
0: I want him back, too.
1: What about you, Mom? Do
2: you want him back?
1: Of course I do. Oh, yeah. Great clip. All right, Dana, let's uh, let's uh, start with you. You suggested we do this. Uh, I enthusiastically agreed when you explained to me a little bit about Koganata. We'll get to him. It's always catnip when someone is using a pseudonym you don't quite know who they are fully uh but let's start with the movie it's it's uh uh, it's a lot about there's a lot of metaphorical and non-metaphorical discussion of grafting of plants and creating hybrids it's a you know it's a it's a movie about maybe the hybrids that we create or will create with ai and the hybrids that they turn us into it's it's an interesting film what do you what do you make of this
3: I mean, I feel a real sense of advocacy about this film and about Coganada in general. Maybe listeners remember that I just a few weeks ago I endorsed, you know, for my endorsement, I chose Koganada's website where he posts a lot of video essays. Some of them he made for criterion. Some of them he just makes for himself, and he started off as a video essayist before making two films. This is his second film. And to me, they've just both been, maybe I love his first film, Columbus, a bit more than this one, but they, they just are so sui generis, so imaginative, and, and so cerebral, while at the same time, to me at least, being emotionally moving and impactful. Uh, so I really hope that people seek him out because I noticed that when you go to Showtime, which is where this movie is streaming, you literally have to type in the entire title of the movie before it comes up. They're doing nothing whatsoever to promote it. So I hope this segment turns a few people onto it. I don't know if you guys agree with me, but I just I find this movie so um, unique in its vision of a future. It's set in this vaguely very vaguely dystopian, because it's actually quite a beautiful world that they live in, right? I mean, their surroundings are beautiful and quiet and spare, and it has this very austere kind of design. Um, But there's a sense that the world they live in has been through something terrible. At one point, you see a bulletin board on one character's wall that has some kind of clipping that says, war ends after 60 years. And I got this sense that we're somewhere late in the 21st century, when there's been some sort of global cataclysm, and that, you know, they're in a world that's recovering from that. And that somehow, in a way that isn't really explained, there's no kind of expository dialogue to tell us how this is true, but that the existence of these androids that can be purchased in order to provide emotional experiences, right? I mean, the reason that the couple has bought this this humanoid AI creature is because he is of Asian heritage, or is he's at least programmed to appear to be of Asian heritage, Chinese, like their daughter, and he's therefore able to impart knowledge about Chinese culture to her. And the movie questions and critiques that social setup without, you know, without ever being obvious about it. I mean, Yang is a real character in the movie. We see him mainly in flashbacks, because as you said, he becomes non-operational at the beginning of the movie. Um, But there's not really the usual sort of AI character question about, is he human? Does he long to be human? I mean, he really is something else. And he seems to be content with what he is, except for his relationship to his cultural heritage. So this also becomes a movie about being an immigrant, about being a stranger in your culture, and in a way, analogizing that to being, you know, a different sort of being, but also questioning that. So there's just, there's a lot going on in this movie. It's sort of about adoption and acculturation and artificial intelligence and what it is to be from a multicultural family and how to resolve that. And also, I think in a way, it's about imagining a future you know and this future is strangely perched in between utopia and dystopia I don't know if you two felt that as well but there's all these little signals that not all is right in the world and yet you know this this family seems to live in a very cushy kind of atmosphere of beauty they also seem to be lonely and alienated and to have kind of uh, uh outsourced a lot of childcare to yang this this ai robot android they live with And so there's just, I was taking notes nonstop throughout this movie, and especially, I don't know what you all thought of this, but the the sequences where the Colin Farrell character, without spoiling anything, I can say that he gets a hold of a kind of chip that contains Yang's memories. And it's almost like a a movie that you can watch. So there's this cool, you know, science fiction touch where he puts on these glasses, basically like opaque granny glasses that permit him to revisit some of Yang's memories from this chip. And the way those memories are rendered is so uh imaginative and and at first kind of almost off puttingly bizarre and we kind of enter a whole different trippy landscape when we go into the the Yang memory world. But by the end of the movie, when you become familiar with kind of how that memory landscape works, it becomes enormously moving.
2: Yeah. No, I, I agree totally, Dana. Um I both about the nature of this society where you think, okay, on the surface, superficially Their lives are so much better than than ours are today. They're not living in a crowded apartment. They seem to have all the things they need. They have beautiful clothes. Their bodies are beautiful. And yet they have exactly all the same pressing psychological mental health issues that we have today, that they're overworking, that they're worried about work, that they're neglecting their family and the people they love because of work, you know, like nothing in that sense, nothing has changed and maybe things have just gotten worse and they do seem lonely and unhappy and sad. Um, and also about the, the Yang's memories, uh, that Jake accesses, um, The whole thing about techno sapiens, as they call creatures like uh, Yang in this world, are that in theory, at least they're biddable. You know, that they we we made them, they do our bidding. uh, And yet you see that actually even a creature like Yang has very specific and very personal feelings he has secrets he's you know he's the ultimate human he has the ultimate human element which is that he's mysterious he has things that are unknowable from the outside that he has memories um, and, and a previous life almost that he doesn't necessarily share with everyone um, and there's something really uh, striking and beautiful about that that's also you know it's a very quiet meditative film the music that we heard in that clip almost feels like it says as much about this movie as the actual words, um, mm-hmm. you know, there's just yeah. kind of a vibe that's set. Uh, and yeah, I, I find it absolutely fascinating.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's very like to- tone poetic, slow burn. It's a curious movie. Um, it takes, to my mind, a somewhat over familiar premise, you know, the Philip K. Dick, do androids dream of electric sheep? And instead of... As Dana says, instead of going in the full Blade Runner direction, you know, they're turning on us, or maybe the humanoid machines will drain off our souls until we're like them. Um, You know, it asks this interesting question and it asks it in such an interesting way. It says, What if we and they become soulful hybrids? And there's a gain and a loss on both sides of that transaction, this, you know, kind of grafting and um, merging of uh, human and AI identities. Um, and so it takes place exactly right, Dana, in this liminal space between utopia and dystopia that's that's so familiar. We've seen Ex Machina, seen Blade Runner, we've read Philip K. Dick. It's 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 not new in some sense, and it's not a self-consciously daring movie, and yet I don't know that we've ever been in that sort of, you know, DMZ between utopia and dystopia before in quite this way. Um I really enjoyed this movie. I was profoundly grateful I watched it, and I'm now going to watch Columbus' his first movie immediately. Um, I had a funny part of it or unexpected part of it that I enjoyed almost the most and the movie doesn't spend a lot of time exploring it didn't go in this direction which is fine but when you're in it to me it was gripping which is the ancillary worlds around technology one being the commercial world so it's sort of an iPhone and Apple Apple parable they keep saying yang is a black box device like you're not allowed actually to open up and find these memories it's totally illegal you're not allowed to unlock or explore it the way you're not allowed to an iPhone. Clearly, the company that makes them sort of sin- the one sinister. Well, there may be many sinister notes, but the most sinister note in the movie is the company is called Brothers and Sisters, and is clearly meant to be a stand-in for Apple and like the the super friendly kind of cultist, you know, sort of bobo hippie cultist who interfaces with you at the at the Apple like store is kind of wonderfully uh, portrayed. Um, but also a kind of black box, hacker world, you know, anonymous collective uh, uh, grapevine that the father has to move through in order to possibly repair Yang uh, uh, or unlock these memories, plus a kind of curatorial museum world where the history of technology is being preserved um, in a somewhat it's presented as a sort of dignified way. Um as a, as a mode of public self-understanding about the history of of technology and how it's kind of um, how the history of technology has unfolded, I thought each one of these was was incredibly subtle and sensitive in its own way. No one's a villain. It's it's just leading you through what's already true of us with the same degree of philosophical sensitivity as, for example, the essays of Bruno Latour. Uh, which I admired in no end. And he's all about the idea you are never going to isolate the human from the non human in any primitive way anymore. Um, I don't know. I, I was totally enchanted by this.
3: Yeah, I mean, and all that thinking you're talking about, it just occurred to me as you were describing it, has been done before the movie was written and filmed, if that makes sense. Like, Mm -hmm. it's just so clear that Kogunada is a very thoughtful person about all of these issues and that that kind of got boiled down into the script. So we don't have to see, you know, the boring exposition happening where the thinking happens. It's already kind of baked into the script. For example, the fact that 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 rogue uh, technician who illegally takes the chip out of out of Yang's body is a conspiracy theorist, you know, and uh, and he has all these ideas about surveillance and which may be true, we're not quite sure, but he thinks that, you know, part of the function of an android is to to conduct surveillance on the family, right? But then he also seems to have beliefs that are sort of, you know, racist and disturbing, but that also is not exactly explored. He's just a character with all of those contradictions. The same thing with a, a character played by Sarita Chowdhury, who is um, a scientist who studies this kind of, human android whatever you want to call yang this this artificial artificially intelligent being techno sapiens is her name for it who wants to put the chip in a museum and sort of turn it into a display so is that dehumanizing or is it an important way to study this new kind of being you know all of those questions i think are left up in the air and are, are complex in a, in a really unusual way
2: i just want to just butt in to say even though it is kind of it in a sense it is contrast uh with the rest of the movie it's sort of You know, the first few minutes as the credits roll are this incredible uh, thing that's referenced in the clip we heard earlier. Family dance, a kind of competitive, synchronized choreography uh, that's a competition, but also exercise and also family bonding. An amazing scene, which uh, then the rest of the movie is kind of set against. uh, But I absolutely love that. Oh,
3: best opening credits of 2022 so far.
2: I just wanted to mention one uh,
3: supporting actress in this who is uh, something of a muse of Coganada. I get the impression, because she played the main character in Columbus, his first movie, which I really want to send people to as well. Her name's Haley Lou Richardson. Actually, we've seen her in something else that we talked about on The Gab Fest. Yes. She was in Support the Girls, that wonderful movie That's with Regina it, yeah. Hall, directed by Andrew Bujalski that we talked about a few years ago. Haley Lou Richardson's in that. Anyway, she plays a supporting but really important part as someone from Yang's past who is discovered when Jake, the Colin Farrell character, starts to investigate Yang's memories— And she's fantastic. She's just an extraordinary actress who really vibes with this director in particular. So Haley Lou Richardson, watch out for her.
1: Okay, one last very quick comment in the same way that Julia is about, and a thing you don't often see representative, a realistic portrait of a happy marriage. This one is a very realistic portrait of good enough parents, right? Um, And uh, I was grateful for that. That really rang a bell with me. It's after Yang. It is findable on... Amazon Prime via a sub Showtime subscription, but it's also on Hulu Plus, where I found it. Check it out. Well, we'd love to hear from you about it in his first movie. Let's uh, let's move on. Okay. I mean, I think the only way to do justice to this segment is to start out being my inane self. Dana, what's that pine tree-shaped air freshener doing dangling from your rearview mirror? <laughs> do you, is it really true what I'm reading that you make your spouse bathe in pine saw? I I we have to get to the bottom of this. Why do you love Chris Pine? <laughs> I can't tell him apart from the other Chris's. I mean, I have to go to Wikipedia to remember that he was young Kirk. And I'm I, not saying I don't love him. But today's Robert Redford, I mean, I could off the top of my head, I could name 20 Robert Redford, iconic Robert Redford roles and, and Pine Takes Wikipedia. I mean, that could be just me.
3: Well, that's the argument of the piece, though, Steve. I mean, the reason that I wrote this little appreciation and assessment of Chris Pine's career is because he has two new movies coming out All the Old Knives is one, which is, I think, streaming only, and then one called The Contractor. And Neither is a great movie. I think All the Old Knives is a, is a more exciting vehicle for him than The Contractor is. But this came up because I was emailing with my editor saying, why am I so excited that there are two new Chris Pine movies coming out, even though his movies are almost always dis- slightly disappointing, unworthy vehicles of who I consider to be a really fun and and uh, and quite rangy actor and and somebody who I always look forward to seeing, even in movies that aren't necessarily exceptionally great. And so that sort of developed into the argument of the piece, which is that although he may may be the Robert Redford of our time, or one candidate for such there is no room for a Robert Redford in the movie landscape of today, right? So Chris Pine has had trouble finding his place. I think most people who know him probably do remember him as Kirk, because that Star Trek series, the J.J. Abrams series, is the thing that he's most associated with. But he pops up everywhere. He makes all kinds of interesting choices. He was also great as Kirk, by the way. And uh, I went into that movie thinking, you know, maybe somebody else could be Spock, but no one but William Shatner could possibly get across the character of Captain Kirk. This is me as a big fan of the original star trek series going in and i immediately bought him as the young kirk and loved him in that but that wasn't as i get into in the in the pine assessment the first time that he had struck me i talk about the movie bottle shock which steve you would love as an onophile <laughs> or wherever you say that word as, as a Rick- wine drinking guy
1: a, I, i'm also a rickmanophile isn't alan rickman in that
3: yeah. Bottle Shock is this movie from 2008. It's a little indie that is about, it's about a real life story about the moment that California wines became uh, started to become ascendant over European wines. And Steve Allen Rickman plays this snobby wine merchant, this British wine merchant who reluctantly goes to California to explore the Napa Valley and there meets up with, among other people, Chris Pine, who plays this sort of, I don't know how to describe what he is. He's sort of a A hippie, 'er ne'er-do-well, cellar rat, as he calls himself, somebody who works at a vineyard but doesn't take his job particularly seriously.
0: Hey, can we get a barrel sample for this uh, French wine snob? He doesn't think we make real wine here.
3: Anyway, it's a super fun, somewhat lightweight but delightful movie. And I just remember going to it, and in addition to adoring Alan Rickman's performance in it, I actually think it is one of his great roles, thinking who is that young hippie kid with the eyebrows? (laughs) He's just such a striking actor with a particular kind of buoyant energy. And he's both very funny and kind of moving as this, you know, this kid trying to find his way in the world of Napa Valley winemaking. Anyway, that was where he first struck me. Then suddenly he was James Kirk. And after that, my radar was always up when Chris Pine was in anything. Of course, the role that most people know him in besides Kirk is as Steve Trevor, the boyfriend of Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman in the Wonder Woman movies. And again, I feel like he takes what could be a very bland role and just knocks it out of the park so I don't know Chris Pine can do no wrong in my view therefore I made this argument that we need to refashion the movie universe so that there is room for an old old school movie star like him
2: You know, Dana, I'm I'm pretty persuaded by you. Um, You're right, of course, that we can't expect to find these 20 iconic roles because the movie industry just doesn't work that way anymore. But whenever I see him, I'm always struck by like how he's he's really very subtle. Like one thing that I notice in those movies that I've seen him in, which is you know maybe three or four. I'm I'm not like by any means a a pinophile, but I. I'm always struck by that he can play like he often plays like the good boyfriend who is also a very strong person who is also, you know, has skills of his own. He's a an autonomous person, but he's not sexist and he loves his girlfriend. And, he, you know, and also obviously, um, you know, he has a great body and all of that. Um, And he, you know, that that kind of role can be thankless and can be bland and can be, you know, just. A pretty face and he is both a pretty face and you know a hot bod and he does give you depth of you know this guy can can this is a guy you would want to know you would want to be this guy's best friend or maybe his girlfriend or his boyfriend or whatever but it's astonishing to be able to kind of pretty much constantly have that kind of feeling given the kinds of roles that men like him are getting given these days.
1: Mm, I can't really come up with interesting things to say about Chris Pine, I have to confess, but about Robert Redford and the hole in the middle of our culture, at least as I understood it growing up, and as it hasn't really transposed into, you know, my mid-adult life is, uh, you know, there was just the space that Redford occupied and maybe he occupied it alone and to expect anyone to occupy it again is is nonsensical, the closest would be in the '90s when people started to understand that Clooney was handsome but had hidden depths; that he was politically thoughtful, uh, represented a kind of liberal, you know, uh, paragon in a way. And I, th- I you know, that that would be the closest. But even now, we're coming up on twenty, twenty-five, thirty years, you know. And I don't, I can't see a sequel to that, really, you know. Just briefly on Redford, I mean. You know, for someone of my age, seeing uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, of course, he's Sundance. Of course, he names his, you know, really kind of enduring and astonishing institute after a film institute after uh, the character. Uh, You know, The Sting, the second buddy movie he makes with uh, Paul Newman. And then All the President's Men, you know, this uh, dark and serious movie about the bringing down of Nixon by the Washington Post reporters. I mean, Every one of these occupies a social space that's been modified nearly out of existence, including the kind of homosocial bonding of those first two iconic roles uh, uh, with Newman. But, you know, also just, God, it, the, the, I hate Dana being a hopeless act, but there is something about the, you know, that, that 70s period Redford where you sensed I wouldn't call him an actor of range. You could argue he's an actor of some depth. He knew how to be quiet and look thoughtful, very thoughtful. Um, but he also, he played roles that were socially significant to someone like me, that a journalist could be a hero who could take down a corrupt president and all the president's men, you know, is just a a life, a life shaping thing to see. And, um, It's no knock on very pretty, very talented Chris Pine that he can't be that anymore.
3: You know, Steve, you're responding a little bit like some slightly trolly people did to me on twitter after i posted this Wh- chris pine whoopsie. assessment where they wanted to wade in and just say how dare you say that i can name oh, no, five iconic no. roles that Redford has taken on when oh, in fact right. they're absolutely right that, that you know those kind of roles don't exist anymore but i don't think it's because there aren't the movie stars to play them i think oh, it's, no, because I I totally it's because it's because the the superhero ecology has completely absorbed you know film culture and in general the sort of tentpole blockbuster ecology has made it impossible for... For movies that, for example, have a journalist as a hero and an auteur as a director, right? To um mm-hmm. to, to find their way. So I guess I was trying in some way to express the the melancholy of that, you know, that when someone comes along who has that kind of big personality and who, as as June, you point out really aptly is Despite his good looks, not necessarily best suited for macho roles, the kind of roles that Pine rarely takes on. Like you say, he's really drawn to these kind of uxorious mm-hmm, characters mm-hmm. like Steve Trevor in the Wonder Woman movies. Yeah. Uh he- he can also sing, which Robert Redford couldn't do. And I talk about him in Into the Woods, which was another revelation for me. Like, I don't really did not like that adaptation of, of Sondheim's Into the Woods and in general thought that it fell pretty flat, including most of the casting. But him as Cinderella's Prince was perfect casting. And it was just it was so much fun to watch him sing that duet, uh, Agony, which he sings with Billy Magnuson in the movie. Did I abuse her or show her disdain?
1: Why does she run from me? If I should
2: lose her, how shall I regain The heart she has won from me? Agony, beyond power of speed
3: I guess what I was trying to look at was, in a way, what happens when you have this, you know, who could be seen as a pretty boy movie star, but who could actually do much more if there was just room and space for him to do more. Somebody else I think about in this connection, although he's a slight, maybe half-generation older, is Brad Pitt, right? Who is also as good in character roles, if not better, than he is playing a leading man, right? I mean, who doesn't love the funny Brad Pitt, the, the dumb stoner Brad Pitt roles, which he really, really kills. For example, in the Coen Brothers movie, Burn After Reading. I think Chris Pine is really set to take over that niche. But even that niche, the Brad Pitt niche, seems like it's sort of disappearing, you know, and COVID has only accelerated that as theaters get more and more dependent on giant movies. So I'm sort of excited for Pine's directorial debut, which is coming later this year. He's about to oh, he started great. his own production company and he's about to direct a comedy starring himself and also starring Danny DeVito and Annette Benning. And I'm really curious to see what he does with that. Because I know when Brad Pitt started to move into he hasn't directed, but into production and started to have more control over the projects he took on he started to get more interesting roles and i just i just know that the moment is going to come for for my pine
1: i know i I, you'll forgive me June, just really quickly i'm lost (laughs) in the in the blonde tresses of uh, robert redford for a second let me just give you this murderer's run here Uh, Starting in 67, going for about 14 years, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Jeremiah Johnson, The Candidate, The Sting, The Way We Were, The Great Gatsby, Three Days of the Condor, All the President's Men, The Electric Horseman, The Natural, and Out of Africa, in which he's a little bit of a, you know, he recedes in that movie. He's happy to be the boyfriend to um, the Meryl Streep character. Uh, No... that hollywood doesn't exist anymore i guess we can mourn it but but maybe there's an upside like no more macho cishet white male saviors uh, you can't be a movie star in that way anymore that's a gain
3: Ah, uh, that seems like another whole conversation, but it seems like we still have plenty of cishet white male saviors in the superhero zone. All right, Steve, I'm going to counter you, and this is harder to do because of the time that Pine is working at. I'm going to counter you with five really essential Chris Pine titles for people who want to explore his work. And I should add also as a proviso that even watching his bad, silly movies or his just okay movies is also lots of fun because of what he brings to them. But here's a, f- a few Chris Pine titles to get started with to really see what he can do. Bottle Shock, which I mentioned earlier. The first Star Trek movie, actually, all of them are good, but I think the first one probably showcases what he does with the character of Kirk the best. Into the Woods, where you can hear him sing, which I should mention, he has also done with Barbara Streisand on one of her albums, where she collaborates with different singers, and he actually sounds great harmonizing with Barbara Streisand on some standards. Hell or High Water, maybe the best movie that he's made. I don't think we talked about the, this movie on the show, but it's a really great western from twenty sixteen with Jeff Bridges, Ben Foster, and Chris Pine. Kind of a, a, a neo western that's really wonderfully done. Wonder Woman, the first Wonder Woman movie where you can see him create that wonderful Steve Trevor character who needs to be constantly rescued by Wonder Woman. It's something I love about that first movie is that he is the damsel in distress. He's the one who needs help. And then, finally, as we await Pool Man, his directorial debut later this year, watch All the Old Knives, which I write about a little bit in this assessment. It's sort of an old-school spy thriller, the kind of movie that Robert Redford might have been in. Really a movie for adults. It's a little bit slow-moving at the beginning, but then you realize that that cat-and-mouse kind of slow burn is the whole point of the movie. It's not a brilliant masterpiece but it is a good vehicle for Chris Pine it comes from his production company so he chose it for himself and uh, it's kind of a good way maybe to, to frame your little personal Pine Fest
1: alright well the piece is called How Chris Pine Became His Generation's Robert Redford by Dana it's up on Slate now check it out and uh, Pineophiles and you know others please uh, send us email alright let's move on
2: another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check
3: Steve, I'm going to endorse an audiobook this week, which I just finished listening to, and which kind of revolutionized the way I think about Virginia Woolf. I've always loved Virginia Woolf's nonfiction and essays more than her fiction, and it's something that I'm always embarrassed and feel unworthy about. I mean, I can admire the beauty and formal power of her fiction and its inventiveness for its time without necessarily ever being involved in it. And I remember specifically trying to get through to the lighthouse and just over and over again, kind of losing myself in the narrative because of that way that she has of skipping from one consciousness to another and just feeling like, I don't know who these characters are, and I can't get into this novel. That was long ago. But I hadn't read Mrs. Dalloway since college. I think I also had an experience of it where I sort of formally admired it without loving it exactly. But I just listened to Mrs. Dalloway as an audiobook read by Juliet Stevenson, the great British actress, uh, maybe known best to American audiences as the lead of Truly Madly Deeply, speaking of Alan Rickman, as we were earlier in the show, a great love story between Juliet Stevenson and Alan Rickman's characters. Anyway, she has an extraordinary voice. <laughs> Nobody can uh, can sound like different people without doing voices like Juliet Stevenson. And I just had the best experience of listening to her read Mrs. Dalloway. And I finally feel like I get it. I, for the first time, was emotionally involved with a piece of Virginia Woolf's fiction because of what Juliet Stevenson does with it. There's nothing like listening to a great work of literature read by an audiobook narrator who truly understands it and truly loves it. And that's what this audiobook is. So if anybody is looking for a really great listen, um, actually, spring is coming up, and Mrs. Dalloway is a spring book. It takes place on a June day when um, Mrs. Dalloway is wandering around preparing for her party. So, listen to it. Put it in your ears as you're wandering around on a spring day, read by Juliet Stevenson.
1: Yeah, my favorite Virginia Woolf. Uh, June. What do you have?
2: I have just have to say, Dana. I need to do that because I've had the exact same experience with Virginia Woolf's fiction. It's made me feel oikish. Uh, so I'm going to check out Juliet Stevenson's version. I want to recommend something that I feel sure must have been recommended by you core Gabfesters. But it's something that, uh, this is the first time I've been on this show since I read it, and it just felt like it is the exact Venn diagram of this show. It's The Free World by Louis Menand. Uh, It's about ideas uh, from World War II to the Cold War, and it's just, We've talked a lot in the show about range and oh, my God, the guy's range, the intellectual range, the kind of mastery, which is a weird word, but feels like the only appropriate word for for what he does in this book. It's he writes about politics and art, you know, visual art and music, lots of different kinds of music and criticism and race and the women's movement and just about all, and you know, on wars and all the big things that happened in that incredibly tumultuous period, in a way that after I had finished, I just felt like I finally understood like all of these things and how they fit together. It's really an incredible book, and so I think anybody who enjoys this show will enjoy it. So if anyone still hasn't read it, uh, please go and do so. Uh,
1: interesting. Relatedly, uh, I'm going to endorse a um, essay by Justin E. H. Smith who. I only just became familiar with through uh, an interview he did. He's written a book about, I mean, speaking about the hybridization of human beings with technology. That's a subject that fascinates him. Apparently he's a philosopher and um, he made a move into, into. I mean, he write, apparently writes for Slate, editor at large for Cabinet Magazine. He, like Menand, is an academic who ventures into public interest or general interest writing with total control and elan. I mean, he has no problem communicating to a non-expert or non-specialized audience, apparently. Um, he has in uh, foreign policy, you can find it online, it wasn't paywalled, an uninhibitedly intelligent assessment of the French novelist and sometime uh, essayist, Michel Welbeck. you know, who's... Such a complex figure, a kind of prophet for everything bad about the neoliberal era, um, who also exists within it in ways that will strike a lot of supposedly clean consciences as very dirty or compromised, I mean, really stupid you know, esoteric views about paying for sex and, and immigration. And, you know, I mean, he's kind of, I mean, he's a legitimate sequel to this lineage of French writers who are very public uh, in the mode of jacques and, um, and yet also dark and controversial like Bataille or Genet or really exploring the id spaces of contemporary, his contemporary culture. And I have a deep attraction repulsion to Welbeck as a writer. And Smith, it's it's a rollicking good read, for one thing. I envied almost every sentence uh, for the intelligence, but also implied joy with which they were quiet it's not show off at all but the kind of quiet joy with which they were written i mean very menandian in a way uh, june but um, but it's also just it's just a beautifully executed subtle appreciation and hatchet job as a little strong but takedown of wellbeck, you know without a tiny, tiny, not even the slightest undertaste of sour grapes. It's a masterful performance and really is one of the best pieces of criticism I've read in a long time. We'll link to it. It's The Punk Prophet Philosophy of Michelle Welbeck by Justin E. H. Smith. Check it out. June, thank you. This was uh, this was really, really fun, and I got to hear you say cookbook <laughs> at least three times.
2: Cookbook, cookbook, cookbook. Thank you for having
1: me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, a delight. And Dana, as always, just a total pleasure.
2: Yes, it was a good one.
1: You will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We will really try to respond. We love getting emails, uh, nudges if you don't hear from us. The intro music to our show is by the composer Nicholas Bretel. Our production assistant is Mandira Goff. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For June Thomas and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you soon. Take care. This is the
2: story of the one.